Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math, see how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james netsuite.com slash james this isn't your average business podcast and he's not your average host this is the james altucher show on the choose yourself network today on the james altucher show i was scared to death i wasn't feeling that I belonged on Wall Street. I felt like I didn't belong anywhere. And to this day, in my opinion for me, the worst feeling in the world is to feel like you don't belong or don't know where you belong. I was looking for advice. I was turning to people, what should I do? What should I do? I literally, if you looked like somebody that could help me, I'd come up to you on the street and go, listen, here's my problem. Because I still, up to that point, felt so silly, stupid, whatever the word is, childish that I was doing this comedy thing, you know. You're an investment banker on Wall Street, for God's sake. And I think ultimately what I needed was I needed validation from Wall Street that it was okay. I was still looking for someone to tell me what to do, and I'm an adult man. And you know, I think it is. People start off on that standard ladder that they were taught from childhood. This is the ladder you have to go on until you die. And yeah, we all want to do different things with our lives. And understanding that life shouldn't be just one thing anyway. All right, so I've got Paul Mercurio on the podcast. And he's got such an interesting life story. He was, he was an investment banker, a lawyer, and then for some reason, quit all of that <laughs> and started writing jokes for Jay Leno, then started being a stand-up comedian, then was on The Daily Show, 
Then the Colbert Show. He's won all sorts of awards and traveled all over the country doing comedy. He's been on a ton of other stuff that we could talk about. But I'm interested. So, so Paul, first, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Boy, I hear my credits. I'm I'm impressed with myself now. And, uh, I, and I only <laughs> yeah, and I only thanks. read like one tenth of your credits. No, like, I'm right. just looking at Wikipedia here. Mercurio yeah, was seen yeah. in a, a role opposite John Cleese in the ABC sitcom yeah, Wednesday. There's like nonstop credits. I know. For you. Well, you gotta. It's a it's a credit driven business. You know what I mean? That's part of the thing. That's part of the. You know, you got a lot of executives that are afraid to take chances on people that aren't known. So over time you build these credits and it, it gives you instant credibility in the room to get cast and stuff, to get development deals. Because if a show fails, I believe they can say, well, I put a, I put Matt LeBlanc in the show. He's a huge star. It's not my fault. I didn't put, you know, Joe Schmo, who nobody knows, but is a really funny guy. So, But it's interesting though that it is... Um kind of a, a validation oriented industry. You know, you need there are gatekeepers and in order to get past the gatekeepers, credits are sort of the currency used to open the gate. Yeah. And then you know, sort of there's like like everything in life, there's nuance. So some credits seem like they matter, but they don't. Um some people are impressed with people for the wrong reason, maybe. But I think for the most part, it does give an indication of like, okay, this person you know, it's no different than when I was on Wall Street as a lawyer, a banker. You, you know, you start out as a junior associate, you become a mid-level associate or a vice president of a bank, and then a junior partner, and then a senior partner, and then you retire and have an affair and blow up your whole fucking life. Um, oh, I, I, I knew about everything but the affair part. <laughs> so sorry, is it okay if I swear? I didn't mean to yeah, say yeah, yeah. So, um, so it's the same thing with this. Like you do. There is a method to the madness, although it's a much more subjective business, which was the biggest thing I had to get my head around coming from the world I came from. And especially I did M&A deals. And M&A deals are like, and when you're at the, with two very big firms, so we had all so the resources. So just an M&A deal, just to, to describe, is you would you would be the banker or the lawyer negotiating the terms when, one, when company A was buying company B. Right, like ExxonMobil, like that, or like Dr. Pepper, we sold Dr. Pepper. And I analogize it now to like you eat uh, like uh, a steak and um, like and then a salad and like that's the acquisition, and then you chew that up and then a couple of days later you take a huge shit and that's the merger <laughs> and I was the colon it all went through me, but uh, um, you know at first I was thinking that was a really horrible analogy like I wasn't getting it <laughs> all but okay I could kind of <laughs> see that because most acquisitions but this is unrelated to anything we're talking about most of the times when company A buys company B it doesn't work. <laughs> Like, yeah. I, like I don't even know why companies buy companies because well, most of them don't it's, work. It's for it's for it's for cost savings and it's to eliminate redundancies, you know. And the whole negotiation is off a discounted cash flow analysis that goes back five years. All right, that's boring. So by the way. Weird, whatever, <laughs> but yeah, I, I'm getting nerdy. But um, uh, so so it, it's similar in the business and like as the the, the in the business I was in before, where is there is sort of you do take steps and stages, you know? And, you know, if you're a comic in New York, you just want to get past at a club like Stand Up New York, which you're a part owner of, or the comedy cell. And then you get past, but you're getting uh, two o'clock in the morning spots. Then you want weekday spots and you get those and you want weekend spots and you want a headline on the road. And it all starts to happen if you're doing it right. It takes time. And then you start to get TV credits or credits. And then that opens doors to do other mediums beyond live performing. But let's let's start at the beginning. Yeah, you're you you got you got into investment banking and the law. Presumably, let's say it was, and this doesn't sound cynical. I mean, I don't want this to sound cynical, but this is the reality. Someone gets into investment banking because 
you end up retiring with a lot of money with re- retirement money yeah. you know and same thing with the law so if you're like if you combine the two you make more money yeah. so so i presume and maybe there's a little bit of love for the law as well yeah, and, yeah. You, and you are intellectual in that way and so you yeah. enjoy the the, the puzzle like process of yeah. putting together a deal together but at the but it's so much i mean i've known a lot of people in the banking world it is so much work so much of it's excruciating your boss might call you like you, you might be like sitting down at 8 p.m with your girlfriend about to have a romantic date and your boss calls you and says hey meet me at the airport in a half hour we're going to houston for an oil deal you totally and you're nailing it and 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 I, i've been there done it it's like and and so the part of what you just said is really the nub of everything about uh, the love of it. And we can come back to that when we talk about my move to stand up. But what happened was I was a middle-class kid from, I am from Providence, Rhode Island. My father put floors in for a living and my parents have a small furniture business, which my mother still has and she's 90 and still running it. And I grew up in a business. I was com- comfortable with business, but for some reason I was interested in the law. Now I grew up in a part of our society where entertainment, being in entertainment, no, you, my parents were high school educated. I'm going to go to college, get a good job, white collar job, which I was going to do, have 2.2 children, the white picket fence, retire and live in Florida. Like that's kind of what we're trained. That's not bad. It's just kind of what societally. Just out of curiosity in that, what's, what was your number? What, when you started with investment banking, given that, and again, somewhat cynically, but I don't mean to be, given that there's this focus on money, what did you feel was the number you needed to and walk then you away. kind of go to Florida and retire and play golf? Well, and- it's funny, you know, it's it's the competitive nature. And I think in all of us, and especially in our society, when it comes to money, my number started out smaller than it. it once I started getting the bonuses, it grew because I was like, can I walk away from this? Right. So I think my initial number was probably like 5 million. I thought, you know, I could live a fairly comfortable life, not be crazy. And, you know, through an S&P 500 index fund, you know, live whatever, you know, live off the interest or whatever. And then it changed to like, I think I had it up to 20 million in my head. Really? Yeah. And, well, and it wasn't, there's, there's it wasn't that- beyond, you know, like if you're averaging three to four to $5 million a year with bonuses and you're not crazy with your money, that's, you know, that's, that's doable, you know? And and so it's kind of like you had to like strip away all of your numbers and goals and everything oh, when you yeah. made the switch. But I just wanna I just wanna say like with Credit Suisse, from what I remember, uh, they would pay their executives like you would get like let's say a million dollars worth of options as a bonus, but it would but it would vest over four years, and right. so you're always getting these bonuses that vest years later. Right. So it's like this that, that's. That's step number one for keeping you reeled in, right? Uh, like shackled to the company. Right. And then step number two is that look, all of your peer group at that point they're buying Upper East Side apartments for millions of dollars, <laughs> and then the place in the Hamptons, and then vacations, and they vacation together. Right. So now your lifestyle does require you to go from five million to twenty in your number. You know, depending on what you expect to make after taxes. Right. So, so the culture itself shackles yeah, you. Yeah, you the company. totally nailed it. You start out buying your first suit. A business suit you interview with, you buy at Macy's. Then you upscale, you buy one at Bloomingdale's. Then it's Barney's, then it's Bergdorf's. All off the rack. We don't do off the rack. Five, six years in, who tailor? What tailor do you use? And so you're looking at fabrics in your office. It like it gets, you know, um, you have the cufflinks. I have a shit ton of cufflinks. I don't know where. I have suspenders. I have Hermes ties. I got 
Armani suits. They're all hanging in my closet. Every once in a while, I'll wear one to go do a TV. You know, appearance. we're about the same size. Should, Maybe I should, I should borrow you some of your Armani suits. I should like show them when I work at the club. People right. are like, "What is wrong with you?" And then I bought my apartment on the Upper West Side, a two-bedroom uh, co-op, door, old-fashioned doorman building, like fancy schman. Like I had a sob, but I wasn't like. Money, 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 money. I by just the way, the sob, I'm not impressed by. Wait, the, Everything it was, else it was, okay. it was a, it was a sob when the, those cool looking sobs when they didn't right. look like every other car, which ended up drowning, I'll tell you later, in a flood. But, um, and yeah, so it was like, it was a combination of, I can't say that I woke up every morning going, I have to be a lawyer. I, this is in my body and my soul and I'm going to make the world better. It was like, I need to... This uh, seems like a good job. I like to think. I like to read. I like to write. Blah blah blah. I like to debate. Oh, and I can. I like business. I'll combine the two. And then if I'm going to do it, I am the kind of person like if I'm going to do it, I want to do it at the highest A level. So that's why I put myself on Wall Street. And I was fortunate enough to get a job. I did a summer associateship, which is a complete. A summer associateship job as a lawyer is such a bullshit job because they make it. They they wine and dine you, and they take you to all these amazing places and these events, and they spend all this money on you. And then once you start working, you're like it's indentured servitude. Right. It's, I, I was going to use the word slave. Slave. But yeah. There you go. <laughs> indentured uh, servitude is fine too. Yeah. And so I was I was living the life. And what you said earlier, the guy calls you up. It's eight o'clock. You got to be. The, it was exactly like I was pulling all nighters on a regular basis because we were doing hostile tender offers and proxy contests which um, for people listening, it's basically like a company doesn't want to be acquired, but they're a public company. And they're, if there are enough powerful shareholders, they can take over the company or the board. And I'm doing all-nighters, like, and, but I'm enjoying it. Like I like, I don't know why, I really liked the, the hustle of it, the, not hustle in a scam way, but just the fast pace of it and everything else. And not a lot of the junior associates liked it. So I was getting a lot of the work. And suddenly I was working for the Rainmakers, the big shots at the firm, like directly, because I was one of the few young associates that was basically willing to like, I had no life. Like I would go to work. Thank God I was now with my wife, who's my girlfriend since high school, and she was totally cool. So I'd come home to the Upper West Side and I'd sleep for a couple of hours, literally. And then I'd go back to work all day and all night. And then I'd come back and maybe I'd have a Saturday off. Would she be unhappy? Like, hey, Paul, want to spend more time with you or? Well, you've met me, you know my personality. People don't want to spend a lot of time with me. Uh, <laughs> no, you know, my wife, I think if we had just started dating, like most people like out of college, she would have been like that. But we were together at that point, you know, probably seven, eight, nine years. She saw me like, you know, studying like a, a lot down in law school in DC and she'd come down. And, so she knows like uh, that was my drill and she was cool about it. And she did feel like over time, as I became more senior, I'd be able to control my schedule more, which would have been true if I stayed on to be a senior person. But I, you know, I was doing these deals. I'm sitting across from T Boone Pickens on one deal, who's like a huge, like this is an Italian. I was, I paint houses in the summer for my father. Like it was like crazy. So just so so just you're at CSFB in the like mid to early nineties. Uh, it was uh, toward the latter part of the 90s, yeah. I was all, and I was a law firm, Wilkie, Farr & Gallagher before that. And I made the jump to investment banking. But it was, a still same, it, it was basically the same thing. I was doing merger deals, but I went from the legal side of the deal to the investment banking side of the so, deal. So you must, do you know Mark Kennelly, Mark Patterson? I know Patterson. I don't know. I don't know Kennelly. So I used Patterson. to do some stuff with yeah. Mark Patterson back yeah. in the 90s. Yeah. So, yeah. And now he runs Maitland Patterson, this big debt yeah. fund. Well, that was the other thing. When I made the move, I started to run a race with myself that I was never going to win, ever, which was, you mentioned, 
your friends getting houses and cars. So, um, and I don't know if I'm getting too far ahead, but we can come back how I yeah, made yeah, the sure. move. But I made this move and I can get into detail how it happened. And I unraveled my life. Like, and again, wife was cool with that because that could be potentially dangerous. Well, yeah, no, I mean, and I completely unraveled my life because what happened was, I'll just tell you how it happened real quick. There was a private function. They had this big fancy open house and Jay Leno was a private entertainment. Now at that point, I had been making short films on the side and I don't know why. What were they about? I made one about a guy with, uh, who was a glove salesman at a fancy store, but he only had one hand. And then, and then, you know, just couldn't deal with the fact he still had one hand. So I got out, of, when I was in law school, I would lie in bed at night in my little shitty one room uh, apartment. I lived and, and down in, uh, in DC and I would think of ideas of, for films. I always loved comedy, I don't know why. So I started writing down, I buy a camera when I come out with my, one of my first paychecks and I start making short films. And then I decided- well, How short is short? Hmm? How short is short? Three, three to- three to 12 minutes. Okay. So then I decided I want to make a film film. So, and I actually used Louis CK's uh, uh, cinematographer, Paul Kessner at the time, and uh, who still has been a cinematographer. And I made a 16 millimeter black and white film, which we edited on a Steenbeck, which is an old uh, machine that the, the old fashioned way, we literally rented one and they carried it into his apartment. So I got a, I got the, it was a big and tall store at 52nd in Madison. And my office was like literally around the corner, literally. And I decided that was the location I was gonna use. And then I'm shooting in the middle of the day and I'm completely panicked that people at the firm are gonna know that I was supposed to be sick and they're gonna see me. I didn't have a permit, I'm on the sidewalk. I'm like, I'm totally freaking out. So I make this film and people kept saying to me, it cost me $12,000 all in to make the film. They're like, why are you spending this money? I go, I don't know, why are you making it? All I could say is, I don't know, I have to make it. That's all I could say. I don't, I, and so I But start, the important thing is you didn't just like lay at night thinking, oh, I need, I, here's an idea for a film. I'll do this once I finish, once I make my number at, at CSFB, you said, I'm going to, I'm going to do my job, but I'm also going to have this, you, you made the decision to do it and not just think it. What do you think led to that decision to, I'm going to do this? Um, I think that something happened um, a co it was a mixed cocktail of two things. It was a, and always a love, a real love for like comedy and TV and movies, just watching, I just loved it. Like I would, I had always get permission to stay up late when I was a little kid to watch any comedian on Johnny Carson. Then I would go into school and I do the comedian's jokes, like whatever, whoever it was, Jay Leno, my friends would laugh. And a disenchantment, just disenchantment with what I was doing. Because what happened was I get bored quickly. So I'm doing these deals and these are fucking sexy deals. Like they're on literally, we would have code names for them because they were hostile. And then they'd come out, they were on the cover of the wall, the front page of the Wall Street Journal and I'm working on them. And I'm just this middle-class kid from an Italian neighborhood in Providence, Rhode Island. But what I did was, okay, I got the deal. You get the forms, you fill the thing out, you do the analysis, you negotiate, and then you do another one. And then you do another one. And while they're different, and the most interesting thing was the due diligence you have to do on each. So if I'm buying your company and it's a healthcare company, you have to do a crash course on the healthcare industry. So I'd come to your offices for two weeks. I go through all your books. I learn every aspect about your industry so I could properly price the deal or negotiate the deal from the legal side. Well, I start to go, well, is this all there is? Like I wanted more. And then this thing kind of was in me. So I started to play with that. 
but not thinking I was going to leave Wall Street to do it. I just, I really didn't know the answer to the question. I can tell you where I was standing when the guy asked me that question, why are you spending $12,000 on a film? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. My friends were spending $12,000, you know, part of- a, On a Rolex. A Rolex or, you know, a suit or a pair of shoes. So I make it and I start to put it into festivals <laughs> and it gets into the HBO Aspen Comedy Festival. What year? Uh, this is probably maybe around uh, 98. I went to the festival that yeah. year. It was crazy. So I go and it's all the big shots in comedy and entertainment are there. So they have a, and I sit in this movie theater and the screen comes on and my fucking name is on the screen. And that's my movie on the screen. And the thing that my whole life, this big black rectangular thing, it wasn't ever me up there. It was everybody else's stuff. Now it's me. So now my head's starting to kind of explode. So then they, they, take, they offer all the young filmmakers to go to a luncheon with established filmmakers. So we get in a van, we go through the woods. Then we go to a clearing and there's a horse-drawn carriage, which then takes us to more woods. And there's this massive house. You walk in and there's a brook running inside the house. Not a nat, not a man-made brook, a natural brook. And I'm like, you know you have money when you just build your house over nature like that. And I'm looking around and there's this picture of this guy. He's in every picture, but it's like him and Paul Newman, him and Robert Redford, him and George, like I'm telling you, right? I'm like, okay, this is something big. I round the corner. He's, these are the people at the luncheon. Um, the Hudlin brothers, Spike Lee, Albert Brooks, and Woody Allen were at the thing. And, and I'm now... I told them that I was, my mother was sick and I was in Rhode Island because I was supposed to be working that weekend. And I'm sitting in this mansion, like, I don't know what's going on. So I come back and then I start writing and I'm writing material and jokes. And I would have a passworded file at work and I would put my jokes into this passworded file. I don't know why I was writing the jokes. I didn't plan to be a standup. I didn't plan to be a writer. I was on track. And when I tell you I had a sweet deal, like it, I was probably going to make partner or whatever. So when I was performing at this private function that I mentioned, and I go up and I, and I wasn't. I, I, I want to back off one second. Yeah. At that dinner with all those filmmakers, what'd you learn there? Um, I learned, I learned kind of, a, and it was an affirmation of what I did, which is you just have to make it. Don't take no for an answer. It, we, we, didn't, we talked a little bit about technical stuff of shooting and whatever, but it was a more bigger picture thing of how to survive and excel in the business, at any, whether you're in, a, in front or behind the camera. But it was, it was really actually comforting because each one of them had a story or more than one story of like hitting a wall, didn't think they were going to make it. Like Spike Lee, what was his? Um, he just, you know, because he was so borderline militant black in his voice at the time. He said, I just didn't think I'd ever get my movies made because Hollywood didn't want to hear some angry black guy from Brooklyn telling Whitey that he's a fucking douchebag. And, you know, and Albert Brooks was quirky and Woody Allen, well, you know, he probably had it easier than the others. So, so it was a, it was a, it was, it was, it was a real like, not literally, but it, it just in terms of spirit, a, a rah-rah, kind of thing that made you walk away going, oh. But for me, I'm in my head going, well, I'm not going to really do this for a living. I'm just, <laughs> anyway, and, and whatever. Yet, so. And yet they're identifying obstacles they had to go around. Your obstacle was the fact that 
you were going to get rich if you just stayed on this safe path. Right. And that was actually an obstacle to your creativity and your success that's a, as That's a really an great way of putting it. it was a, that was a long range. And then the other obstacle was just not getting caught. Like I, because I couldn't tell them I was doing this because right. I knew that if these are like white, you wouldn't get your friends. bonus. I wouldn't get my bonus. They would say that's not appropriate. They'd want to start looking at seriously because these are like white shoe firms with like multi billion dollars at stake. So yeah. they, so I knew like, so and I wasn't. Uh, um, my my girlfriend, now my wife Carol, who were living together, she knew that I was doing the film and stuff, but there was this other thing inside of me that was starting to come out, which was the jokes. And I didn't tell anybody I was writing the jokes. I was very self-conscious about my jokes. I was very like, it was so. So I'm writing the jokes, I'm writing the jokes, I'm writing the jokes. And Jay Leno's at this thing, you want to come down? I'm like, I can't, I got like hours of work. Like, I, so my one of my friends is like, just come for an hour. So I never forget it to this day. So I stand up and I'm putting my coat on and I'm standing over my, uh, I'm standing over my um, keyboard and I'm like, ah, fuck it. And I hit the print button. And I printed out all of my jokes. And it dawned on me then how much I was writing because I literally had like 15 pages of jokes. Is that the jokes right there? You're no, holding no, up? these are, these are <laughs> the notes and stuff. But so I go down, he does, Leno does the show, private show for like 150, 200 people. <laughs> and I go up to him, I say, I'm a huge fan, which I was at the time is true. But okay, he hears that from everybody. Right. How did you distinguish yourself? I said, I have jokes that I wrote and I don't know if you need jokes, but you can have these jokes. I'm never going to use them. And I think that's how I distinguished myself. And I thought he was going to say, no, I don't take jokes. And he goes, okay, he takes jokes. And I start to walk away and he goes, hey, come back here. I go, what? He goes, you might want to put your name and your phone number on here so I know how to reach you. So here I am like Mr. Wall Street, big guy, right? And I, he takes the jokes I think this guy's been doing it a long time. I got a really nice blow off. I don't know why I gave him the jokes. I didn't wake up that morning going, I need to be a writer on a late night talk show. I need to go do stand up. So it was it was sort of it was coming out of me in pieces, you know, in pieces. And now in retrospect I could see it clearer, but when I was in it and then I had to make this tough decision to leave and the fear and the doubts surrounding that decision, I was a mess. Like we can get to that in a minute, but so I hand him the jokes, and then two days later, my phone rings. Hey, it's uh, it's Paul there. It's Jay Leno, and I told my friend. Is, is this your Jay Leno impression? It's by not the way, very good. I don't. <laughs> that's why I don't do him in my act. I always say it's like letting him helium out of a balloon very slowly. And I thought it was my friend David who does voices, and I told him about my encounter with Jay Leno. I go, yeah, right, really funny, Dave. <laughs> he goes, no, it's Jay Leno. I go, yeah. I go, you do a lousy Jay Leno, and I said that to Jay Leno. <laughs> and he goes, I'm Jay Leno. I think I do a pretty good Jay Leno. So then I realized it was Jay Leno, and I'm like, oh, fuck. And he goes, uh, I read your stuff. It's clean, and I need stuff for the Tonight Show monologue, so I'll hire you to start sending jokes in for the Tonight Show monologue, and if I use anything, I'll pay you per joke. He goes, don't leave your day job yet, but... I think you got something there. And, and I go, uh, he pay, I'll pay you 50 bucks a joke. And he goes, what do you do for a living? I go, I'm a lawyer. And he starts laughing. He goes, ah, I knew it. I go, why? He goes, you write like a lawyer. You're way too wordy. He goes, just get to the punchline. I would have like four lines just to get to the punchline. I was giving him stage direction, like make funny face here. And he goes, I've been doing this a while. I know when to make a funny face. And, 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 and thinking about it, just, just context, like 
since the seventies, he he was like kind of the he was the sort guy. of classic stand up. He's the comedian. guy that taught Leonard, Letterman to be a good stand up. Oh, he was all of them. he him, was the guy. Letterman, Robin Williams. They're all kind of like right. sort of the same and the time at the store. Of those guys, I should actually send you the. Uh, I had him on my podcast, and you should try to get him on yours. Was um, uh, the guy that opened? He's uh, one of my forget his name. He opened for Frank Sinatra all the time. Um, anyway, it'll come to me. But yeah, Leno was the guy, and Leno was a really good a club comic. Now he. You know, on the Tonight Show, he had, you know, you can't do your club comedy. So it was a little different, but so I said, okay. Well, what, I, what were some of the jokes in those initial packet that you sent him? Oh, it was you like, you know, him? guys on motorcycles weaving through traffic. And he goes, well, by the way, I, I'm a big motorcycle guy. So I'm not going to do jokes about, it's like how, how much I hated that they would drive you through traffic. The joke that he, the, he called me the following week. He said, I'm going to do one of your jokes on the Tonight Show tonight. And I'm like, whoa. So I found a way to get out of work early, for which for me was like nine o'clock at night. And I went and bought a bottle of champagne. And my wife, my girlfriend and I went up to 81st and Central Park West to Dave and Lynn Burke's apartment. We grew up with in Rhode Island. And he did my joke and I popped the champagne and my head blew off my fucking shoulders. Cause here's this box that I watched my whole life since I was four. And my words came out of that box. Huh. And that was way more compelling than sitting across from T. Boone Pickens, being part of a team negotiating a merger deal of billions of dollars that's on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. And so it's interesting, you kind of moved yourself and, and you, you expressed this in a visceral way, but I'll describe it in a different way. You moved yourself from being near the top of one hierarchy, that's a very impressive hierarchy, this mm. sort of investment banking world, to the bottom of another hierarchy and you didn't say, oh no, I deserve still to be near the top because I know how to already be successful. Right. One thing I should be kind of close to successful here. You you, you were so naive and at the bottom of this hierarchy, you didn't even put your name and phone number down. It's right. like you were like a base amateur. Yeah, exactly. And I, and I just, and I didn't really give him the jokes with the idea that anything was going to happen other than maybe he'd use one of my jokes. What was the joke he used? The first joke he used was about this old house, you know, the refurbishing show on PBS, how it doesn't reflect reality because in, in, the, in the show, like um, they're always under budget on time. They do extra work. The guy's clean shaven, but in real life, he's drunk. He's showing crack. He's hitting on your wife, going through your sock drawer, you know, just it, through a list of things. And it did really well. So then I became obsessed with writing jokes. So I was going to deal meetings with two notebooks and one was for the deal and the other was for notes, but I wasn't taking deal notes. I was, and I was supposed to keep the notes for the meetings and I have to go back and ask somebody else in the meeting what happened because I was writing observations down and then making jokes, writing jokes. And then he, didn't, he, he kept doing my jokes. And then he said, you know, you could try the jokes out before you send them to me. And I go, how do I do that? He goes, go to open mic nights. I go, what's that? Like, this is what your naivete is perfect. Like, you totally hit it on that. I'm like, he goes, you would go to a bar for those listening who don't know what it is, you go to a bar and it's usually they have like a spare room in the back on a Tuesday night and they stick a microphone in there and then it's a way for the bar to make extra money and you go do five minutes as an amateur along with like poets and folk singers and whatever else. So I find out, I go, how do I find that? I goes, well, go to one of the big clubs and ask a couple of comedians. So I went to like, I think the comic strip or somewhere and I said, how do I, and they told me the name of a couple of bars and I started, so I went. And one of the places I worked was in the Bowery. It was called Downtown Beirut Two, and I don't remember it. Yeah, it was it was a complete shithole. It was at like, that time I used to go to the um, Luna Lounge uh, for right. those on Monday nights. There yeah. was like Mark Maron would host. Yeah, and, 
Yeah. Everybody would do their thing. I yeah. don't know if you ever went to those. I went to I went to watch, but I didn't perform. And did you perform? Or no, watch? no, I yeah. was just watching. Yeah, I was sca- too scared to yeah. perform. And I and I um, and again, it's I'm not like okay, I'm going to do this. I don't. I couldn't not do it. You know what I mean? I guess it's like an alcoholic. I just could not take the drink. So and, and so he wanted you to go to open mics because he felt to, probably that was a good way for you to learn to take the fat out of the jokes. And to test the jokes and make them better. Mm. And he's right, you know. But the only thing he was wrong about is open mic nights are the no indication, the worst indicators of material because it's either peop, comics and performers waiting to get up who A, either don't want to support you because they're insecure assholes or they're too nervous to focus on what you're doing or kind of drunks. And so one of the reasons I talked to the audience in my act is it was a tool that I used early on to get people to pay attention to my material. Mm. Cause I realized I'm doing this material. <laughs> Guys looking at their watches on the phone. And then I was like, fuck this one night. And I started, I made people pay attention by talking to them. And then I start to talk to them and then I would segue into a joke. So it was like feeding carrots to a baby with a scoop of ice cream right first. So, I go and I, I'll tell you this one thing that happened. Now, so I'm going to these clubs and they're dive bars. So I, and I'm coming from this other world. So it's literally, I was literally on the 54th floor of, a, of an office building in a marble office. And then I am in a place that has a sign on the men's room door that says the toilet seats only to be used to go to the bathroom, not to cut Coke. Thank you, the management. <laughs> that has a regular hooker that worked out of there who would give you notes on your joke. It was like a dysfunctional cheers. It was fucking That's insane. That's funny. So well, I, I, that is a sitcom. Yeah, no, actually, yeah. And we've actually, I've actually written it as one and we're about to try to get it made or get it out there because the whole story is, this is just part of it and it kind of unravels and stuff and then goes in. Anyway, so you'll see. So, so I go there one night real quick and um, you pick a number out of a hat and I had to wait. So what I would do is I'd have a town car take me downtown and I have them drop me off like two blocks from the club in the shadows because I didn't want I couldn't let anybody on this world know that I was a Wall Street guy. I take off my cufflinks and and I mess up my hair and pull my I tried to look as downtown as I could in my like two thousand three thousand dollar Armani suit, right? Take my coat off and I shirt tail, no tie. And I'm waiting to go on stage one night and there's a folk singer on stage playing Blown in the Wind like badly. Like just like, like, like a lot of that. And um, there's a fight at the pool table and a guy runs out of the bar and another guy grabs the side of his neck and he starts screaming, he cut me, that motherfucker, he cut me. And it was a drug deal gone bad and they knew each other and the guy sliced him across the side of the neck with a box cutter and he's drunk. But not the juggler, but he's bleeding a lot. So, I mean, he's not passing out, but there's blood, a lot of it but he won't, he's, nobody can calm him down because he's pissed. So he's like, he, and he's drunk. He's like, he cut me, I'm gonna get him. And his girlfriend's crying like, oh my God, look at my boyfriend. He was like, who's this? And the answer, my friend, and the guy just keeps playing. Like he does not stop because you wait like a, a month, two months to get this spot, right? right? No, nothing is gonna keep you from doing what you wanna do. So now I, I'm supposed to be next. I think this is over. So I literally get up from the bar, I pay my bill and I'm walking toward the door and I'm one foot out the door and I hear the MC go up and go, all right, you guys ready for some comedy? <laughs> now I'm not doing it long enough to know that I don't have to go up. I can just walk, but I think I gotta go up. So I go up and I had the, I did think, boy, I probably should acknowledge that this is going on. Cause now the cops are there taking a report. You can hear their radios. Hey, 86 or nine, I'm gonna fucking kick his ass. Like, and I say, it's nice to be here at downtown Beirut too. I always wanted to follow a slashing. 
Thanks. I thought it was a pretty good line. Well, the guy heard me say slashing and he thought I was busting his balls, the guy who got cut. And he had all these like bloody napkins, cocktail napkins, and was pressing them against the side of his face. And he goes, hey, you making fun of me? You think I'm going to take any shit from you? And he takes all these bloody napkins and he wads them up and he throws them at me. And they hit me in my shirt, my white shirt. And they like kind of stick and then they fall off. And I got a, now I got a blood stain on my shirt. Now, a normal person at this point goes, I'm getting the fuck out of here. But I'm like, this is, I'm staying. Just fuck this guy. I'm staying. I don't give a shit what happens. Nobody's paying attention. I, I, I'm bombing like the worst way you can possibly imagine. And I got blood all over me. And then the guy who got his, he goes, are you still up there? This is the guy who got cut. I go, yeah. He goes, what are you doing anyway? I go, I'm trying to tell jokes. And he turns back to the crowd. He goes, uh, I, I like jokes. Hang on a second. Hey, everybody, shut the fuck up. This guy's trying to tell jokes. And the whole place shuts up. Oh my God, and he's still bleeding? Let's stop to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Hey, thanks so much for listening. It means so much to me because I really love getting to do these podcasts and to talk to all of these incredible people. I learned so much and I hope you learn so much as well. If you like the show, make sure subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also check out the show notes at jamesaltitude.com slash podcast. Also, if you want to get my blog updates and other updates that I do, sign up for the newsletter at jamesaltitude.com. Once again, thanks so much for joining me on the journey of this podcast. Oh my God, and he's still bleeding. He still, he, when he yelled, a little bit of blood would like squirt out of his, out of his like <laughs> wound. It was the best two minutes I had because everybody was afraid not to pay attention to me. Mm-hmm. I get back in the cab, the car, I dress back up. I can't go home and get a new shirt because I was supposed to be gone an hour for dinner. These were dinner breaks. So all the other people were going to dinner at the firm. I was going to do open mic nights. It's like 11 o'clock. The senior partner's there. He's pissed as shit. He should have gone home four hours ago. I walk into the conference room. There's lawyers from Morgan Stanley. There's uh, bankers from Morgan Stanley. There's lawyers from Scadden. There's JP Morgan, like all 15 guys, women. And I turned into a 12-year-old, which is like, you know, like if you break your mother's vase and you glue it back together and you think she's never going to notice and the minute she sees it, she no- that's I turned into that kid. So I decided I'm just going to walk around with a file folder up against my blood stain and no one's going to notice this like tomato sized blood stain on my shirt. So I walk into the room and I, my foot hits the carpet and the senior partner's like, where have you been? Why do you have a blood stain on your shirt? Like right out of the gates. I'm like, I'm fucked. And he's angry. He's very angry. He lives in Chappaqua, Steve Flood. Steve Flood didn't stay past six o'clock. He was a corner office guy, which means there are partners and then there are partners. And there's like four corners in a square rectangle and he had one of the four he was the guy one of the guys and i didn't have an answer now at this point i had been hiding this from the firm but now my like secret was going to get out i'm like oh shit and i'm just this long pregnant pause and i'm like uh and then the lawyer goes what kind of shirt is that i go it's a brooks brother shirt why he goes I know how to get blood out of a Brooks Brothers shirt. And he starts club soda and lemon juice. And then another guy goes, I like Armani for getting stains out. And they started to debate about what was a better shirt to get stained. And I just backed out of the room. And that became my life. I was, li- I was living a secret double life. 
And I was hiding the stand-up from my girlfriend as I was really embarrassed. Really, how come? Because I felt like it was a trivial, insignificant, silly thing. And coming from the world that I was in, which was Wall Street, and then within Wall Street, as you know, M&A is like big testosterone, you know, cigars and blah, blah, blah. I just felt like a douchebag, but I couldn't stop doing it. There was a night I had to hide. I had, there, I, I'm about to go on stage and a partner, senior partner's wife comes in with her friends and she knows me, we've been to parties together and I'm literally about to go up. I throw myself behind the bar and I'm on my knees and I'm going to the MC, bring me up as Paul Windmill. Windmill is the street I grew up on when I was a kid. He goes, why? He goes, just bring me up as Paul Windmill. He brings me up as Paul Windmill. And I did the entire set with my, basically almost my full back to the audience. Like I was kind of looking to my left with my right left shoulder. And I did it for five minutes. And then I ran out the back door through the kitchen. I almost slipped in the kitchen because the floor was greasy. And I was having, I was having a nervous breakdown now because I'm doing these crazy intense deals and I'm in these dive bars and it- But not only that, you're risking, let's let's just, I'm throwing out a number, but you're risking a million dollar plus bonus. Yeah. If someone says, oh, we don't like this anymore. Yeah, and there's no way they would have approved it. There's no way. They, and like they could even say that on December 31st, the last day of the year, and you don't get your bonus. Right, right. Oh yeah. And it so now, cutthroat. so now, oh God, yeah. Not like the other guy was cut. Right, no, the- <laughs> So now I have a dilemma because now I'm starting to really, even though the gigs are hell gigs, the reaction that I got from Leno doing my joke on TV paled by comparison to the reaction that I got when I did the joke. Like in terms of your emotional, and here's what happened. And it took me a long time to figure this out. When you're an investment banker or a lawyer, you're whispering in the ear of the deal the guy whose deal it is. It's not your deal. You're invested in it insofar as that you wanna do well and get a big bonus and go buy a boat, but it ain't yours. You didn't really create anything. You didn't build anything from scratch. It ain't yours. I wrote this, these words, I put them together a certain way and a guy said them and a lot of people liked it and reacted to it. That's a whole other planet. And then when you were doing the, the open mics, when did you realize it's not just getting up there and telling jokes to make them better for Leno, you were to actually transform from a writer of jokes to a performer, to a stand-up comedian, which yeah, it's is a, a great a different question. art form. Yeah, it's a great question. I, I mean, a time frame, maybe like, a, I don't know, eight, 10, 11, maybe eight to 12 months into it, I started to go, oh, this is cool. I, I, I could just Screw Leno, just do these jokes for me. Now, I'm not saying I was killing an open mic nights. I wasn't, like literally, but this is how... This is how intoxicating it is. Let's say three times I go up, which is three five minute sets over the course of a couple of weeks. Maybe I get three laughs total, true laughs. So that's one laugh a set. That was enough to make me think I should keep doing this. I didn't think I was great, but that I, that feeling when well, you do stand up, so you understand there's this thing that just happened like, holy fuck. I, Really? I wrote that and I said it and you liked it? You know, part, part of it is insecurity, obviously, but like there was a fulfillment that I wasn't getting. But what's interesting is a lot of people, and I'm assuming you're one of them and a lot of listeners and I was one of them, a lot of people are funny when they're in conversation with their friends. Yeah. They can get a laugh more than once a week. Yeah, yeah. You know, with their friends. Yeah. But there's something about, oh, you can 
take a room full of strangers yeah. who all have different agendas. And like you said, some are listening, some aren't. Yeah. And you could suddenly bind them all together with right. a laugh that you wrote. Right. Uh, there's something special to that. It's, it, it's an, an extraordinarily difficult skill. Yeah, I mean, but I didn't realize it at the time, you know? Like, I think I watched these guys all these years do it on TV at a professional level and think, oh, that's pretty easy, you know? Right, but they'd already been doing it like 20 years. 20 years. And then as I'm doing it, and I look back now when I talk about it out loud, it's like, there was no evidence that said I should have been a stand-up comic for a living. I don't think there really is for anybody when they start. I mean, maybe there's like a, you know, a, a prodigy every once in a while. But I know what happened was, I, and, I, and the other thing too goes back to what you said about Wall Street at the very top of this, which is like, you know, you're enticed by the idea of money. I was enticed by a fairly vapid thing in entertainment, which was seeing myself on TV. I liked the idea of being a star and I still do. And I really love seeing myself on TV and I don't apologize for that. I think it's a really cool thing and it's a cool maybe side benefit of what I do or what we do. You know, you know it's funny how, uh, I, I, you see this at, let's say, the top, top level, like a Brad Pitt. Like they're always like, oh, you know, famous isn't all that it's cracked up to be. But the reality is, like, if someone walks up to you on the street and says, hey, I saw you on Colbert last night, I really liked it. That's like an amazing feeling. Yeah, and you get treated differently. I'll, quick story. I was in a, I was in a, a town. I had trouble with my hotel room. The guy was kind of rude to me at the desk. It's a nice hotel. I didn't get upset with him. He was just kind of rude. I go upstairs and a couple hours later, I come back down to go to dinner. He goes, Mr. Mercury, I'm so sorry. I realized that I know you from The Daily Show. I saw you recently on Colbert. I called my wife. She's a huge fan. So let me let me fix that. Now, if I wanted him to come and paint my house, which I thought was kind of shitty, like, yeah, dude, yeah. if you could do it for me now, I'm not a different guy two hours later. Yeah. I'm not going to say that doesn't suck, you know? Right. And so I understand. So this idea of, well, celebrities got a, a lot of negatives to it. Maybe it has a few, but for the most part, it's a pretty cool fucking thing. And it's, it is an affirmation when you get recognized, when so, you get, when you, get uh, you know, some compliments from people for your work. So did performing these jokes in front of an audience, did, did it improve your writing for Leno? Did Leno start taking more jokes? Yeah. And, and what, actually, let me reel back one mm. half inch, which is, what is a joke? What did Leno want? He wanted stuff that a, I think, you know, that could play to a broad audience. I don't mean that in a bad way, but it could play to a 25-year-old in New Jersey and a 78-year-old retiree in Wisconsin and everything in between. Like, what's an example joke that Leno would like? Uh, By the way, did you know uh, John Max? No. He, he did a lot of Leno's monologues for many years, uh, and he wrote a book called Monologue, and he was on the show. Mm -hmm. uh, he's He's been on this show. And then... Maybe this was before your time. His big head writer was a uh, guy, uh, Jimmy um, Brogan, was mm -hmm. his main like head writer and would go, and Leno goes out on Sunday nights and he tries, would try jokes out for the monologue for that week and Brogan would go with him and take notes. They would do it at the Hermosa Beach Comedy mm -hmm. uh, Club. Um, yeah, that made my jokes less fat. That's what you said. Like, And by fat, for people listening, I mean, it was just it, it, more concise, more efficient with the use of words figuring out where the punchline should be, figuring out what the right word is, you know? Like, like what's an example? It doesn't have to be funny. I just structurally, what's an example? Well, I did something. I, I went on PIX11 uh, uh, News the other uh, two days ago and to talk about the Super Bowl and just like how there are people that just watch the Super Bowl once a year and they don't know terminology. So for example, like uh, we were talking about the goalpost, right? So the way you would structure that joke is, 
this thing, you show a picture of a goalpost, um, is not co is called a goalpost, not a pulley thing. Now, if you don't know what you're doing, you'll say, it's not a pulley thing, it's a goalpost. So you put your punchline before the setup and you end it on the word that's not funny. That's like basic one-on-one writing, right? Mm -hmm. Like if like if you're just a person in life, you go, that, that's 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 not a goal, that's not a pulley thing, it's a goalpost. Like that's how somebody irritated would say that. So it's that kind of thing. It's just the that's the real basics of comedy writing. And then and basics then, so, me and, and just to take the lesson from it, yeah, um, make the funny word last. Have make, a premise, right? And make the fun the the funny word or the funny aspect that's yeah last or the punchline. Yeah, or whatever. there's also certain words that numbers like thirteen I think is funnier than twelve. You know, because of the heart, like the some of the yeah. The, some people say K like Buick. You know, is funnier than you know. Uh, you know, Tercel, you know, I mean, that that stuff gets a little minutia for me. I mean, but I think that, yeah, there's a, there's a lot to go in. And there's some observational, like obviously the goalie post one is observational. Yeah. A lot of people are watching the Super Bowl. It's sort of like, why are they watching yeah, this like one Yeah, the, like the other thing I have was like, you know, there's a man on the field, he's got stripes. When he puts his arms like this up, he's indicating a touchdown. It's not a robbery in progress. And that got a, like a good laugh on the set and everything else. It, it's... That's morning TV, it's eight o'clock in the morning. It's like soccer moms watching it. So your material has to be different. What, what setting was that? What were you doing that in? Uh, on morning TV, PIX11, morning show. Okay. So now when I go into a market and I headline, you do press and I'll do all sorts of press because of my daily show background and stuff, I can do news talk and make it funny. I can do sports talk and make it funny. Do FM, which tends to be harder, rock, edgier. So, I, so in one morning I'll do a strippers and beer show where they literally have strippers. So you gotta be edgier and like kind of, and then I'll go literally, literally across the hall and do a sock, what they call soccer mom show, which is, you know, you know, kids, women driving their dads, driving their kids to work. So you've got to do softer stuff. That's also funny. And, how and that's a really good thing. You asked, we were talking off air about like doing the road. That's another good reason to do the road because all performance informs all other performance. So when I do that little five minute set on a radio show, that, and you, you do hundreds and thousands of those as you do them as a headliner, that makes you a better performer on the stage. And when you headline a room and have to do two and three shows in a night and work through the check spot, nothing phases you in a room with a mic with a radio guy across from you. And then when you act, that makes you a better stand up. And it, uh, it, it's so important to have all of those experiences because it all feeds into you. I'm just going to sound pompous, but like not the artist and the brand and who you are is all informed and in based on those building blocks. And so when when you were starting to make this transition from Leno to, from from investment banking to full time yeah. comedy, how many jokes a day would you say were you writing? Oh, I was probably writing at least 10 jokes a day in in between here and there. This is working 18 to 20 hour days with and, very little sleep. And and how many jokes would Leno take? It was on Leno was on. getting hundreds of jokes a day. Yeah, he he'd, take, he'd take a joke here, a joke there. I wasn't getting a ten on, ton on. I, I was getting a decent amount on, but the point was I was getting stuff on, but, the, but then that became less important. I wanted to do stand up for me now. 
Could, could you ever call him up and say, hey, let me do the, uh, a monologue like other comics, a five minute monologue? I wasn't ready for that. I wouldn't have asked. Yeah, and it would have, I, I would have put him on the spot. So I never, I didn't ask him that. So what ended up happening was I now at the point where I'm a good couple of years into this like double life and I'm about to have a nervous breakdown. And I have a, I'm, now I'm having a midlife crisis in at my late, tw- like, I don't know, late twenties. And this is the part that completely freaked me out. I grew up, always knowing what I wanted to do and what was expected of me. You go to school, you study hard, you get your A's, you get your good SATs, you go to a good college, you get your good LSAT, you go to a good law school, you work your ass off 18 hours a day, you become a junior associate, middle-level associate, partner, retire. I understood the game. And the game is very A, B, C, D in that, in my opinion, in that world. All of a sudden, here I am, and I always had it figured out. Like I had it every, I was very clear. Now I had no idea what I should be, where I should go. I was scared shitless. I didn't have the guts to make the jump and quit Wall Street. I knew I wasn't feeling that I belonged on Wall Street. I felt like I didn't belong anywhere. I felt I was a wreck. I was looking for advice. I was turning to people, what should I do? What should I do? I was scared to death and I had never been scared to death. And to this day, in my opinion for me, the worst feeling in the world is to feel like you don't belong or don't know where you belong. I felt like I had two how I was like two howitzers loaded, ready to shoot in terms of talent, knowledge, ability, whatever it is, <clears throat> whether it's law, investment banking, kind of like pretty talented guy who can work his motherfucking ass off. And I had no idea where to shoot those did, howitzers. And did Carol, did Carol, your wife, say, "Hey, let's just hold out a few more years on your current track because then." You know, you you might have enough to just, even if it's not your exact no, my number. Wife, my, my wife has never been driven by material things ever, 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 ever. She works in museums, a curator. She's really into the arts, but even that, she doesn't push that on anybody. She just, she thinks she just base level. You can have a lot of happiness with not a lot of things. So I'm looking around. I literally, if you looked like somebody that could help me, I'd come up to you on the street and go, listen, here's my problem. I don't know what to do. I was talking to my college advisor and, uh, and then think, all of a sudden think, one day- Do you think there fo- might be something to the fact that if you don't know what to do, then you kind of do know what to do? Well, here's the thing. I was a pussy and I didn't want to make the decision. So I talked myself into believing that God made the decision for me when I got a phone call one day that my father dropped dead of a heart attack and I had to go home for the funeral. And when I went home, I'm the youngest of three. My brother works with autistic children and my sister works as a nurse and I'm the business law guy. And my now it's just my mother running this furniture store and she's in her 60s at the time, I don't know, late 60s. She goes, I think I'm gonna eventually retire without daddy. I don't think I can do this. Do you wanna take over the business? And I'm like, yes, God made the decision for me. That's why my father died. I didn't wanna make the decision. I knew I didn't wanna make the decision, but I talked myself into the fact that I had to do this, which I didn't. She could have either closed it or found somebody else or sold it or continued to do it, which she ended up doing. But I just was like looking for a life raft and I grabbed onto that and said, this makes sense. My wife and I are from here, we'll move back, we'll start a family, I'll have this business and I'll fuck all that other shit. And so this was almost like a bridge decision. Like it gave you, it gave you a logical, rational decision to leave uh, the investment banking world, whereas, just saying, I'm gonna leave this to hang out at like dirty dive bars yeah. and do open mics. That didn't feel like a logical decision. No, I mean, I mean, look, how, how 
this is why there's a lot of writing that I don't like. He pursued his dream and he got it. No, it doesn't fucking work that way. You sit in your bed at night in your two bedroom million dollar apartment and you go, am I going to walk away from my sob and fucking eating at Latesse every other night? Still not impressed by the sob. And uh, (laughs) and, uh, my Mercedes, I'm going to change it for the story. And and go and sit in these shitholes for no money and and you said it earlier you have to you have to blow the house up and start from the foundation this ain't the kind of thing where you go oh i'm going to dabble in it and then i'll eventually get to the point in stand up where i'm making $500,000 part time it doesn't work that way right. you got to go fail and fail and write and fail and network and get yourself into this club and get on tv like it's a whole am i going to do that you don't sit there and say to somebody, yeah, it was an easy decision. I was sh- literally shitting my pants to the point where I couldn't make the decision. And I like, quote, I'm doing air quotes here, God make the decision when my father died. And it was horseshit. And I talked myself into a horseshit rationale at the time I didn't know I was, but I did. But, it, but it's the sort of decision you could say to your boss at the bank, hey, my dad died, his family, there's the family business, I got to take over it. And he can always say to you, I totally understand. You're welcome back. Leave of absence. That's exactly yeah. yeah. That's exactly what I did. So I and I um, we rented out my apartment, and my wife moved up there. We we still weren't married yet. Um, and by the way, when I told my wife that I, I finally had to tell her that I was doing the secret double life, she goes, "Oh, thank God." I go, "Why?" She goes, well, "I thought you were cheating on me." I go, "Why?" She goes, "Well, because you were supposed to be at work all night. You're coming home. You." Clothes reeked of beer and cigarette smoke. You had blood stains. You had you had women's phone numbers, which were just other comics with rooms that I could work. So she put a completely different puzzle together. Which was kudos crazy. to her though for not uh, confronting with you, no, with I you know. instantly. Why I know. didn't she confront you instantly? Because she's a wasp, and they don't confront; they just keep it inside. I really <laughs> do believe that. But uh, she, Italians, just it all just comes pouring out of you. But I, I just think she's a very trusting person, and you know, we we. We just, we've been, we were together a long time at that point, you know, and just yeah. really loved me and didn't care what I did. So, and still doesn't. So, so I moved to Rhode Island and I think my mother's going to take, my mother's a very demanding person. She's very headstrong, very entrepreneurial. It's her way, the highway. She was always a central figure in the family. And I think she's going to give this business up and I'm going to run it. Bullshit. I turned into, she turned me back into a 15 year old whose job was to run errands for her. And I'm trying to put in a computer system and she won't let me do it. And she, you know, she she doesn't use filing cabinets. She puts all of her bills and files in styrofoam coolers because they're easier to carry around. And she, and I joked one day, I said, yeah, it looks like when you get audited, it looks like you're going on a picnic. And she was like, that's not funny. I'm like, all right, whatever. So we, I just, we were oil and water, you know? I was doing billion dollar merger deals. I My job there was like, go get me a cup of coffee move the chair. She wasn't going to retire because you're always a child in your parents' eyes. Yeah. Always. You never get the respect that you should get. And I understand that. I mean, I have a kid. I get it. She You'll locked the customer in the store. What's that? You're never going to respect your kids. Nah, he's an idiot. No. Uh, she locked the customer in the store one day. She can't hear. She has bad hearing and she was. she's very flighty and very creative. She had to go to the bank before three o'clock to make a deposit. <laughs> go to the door and the door's locked. And there's a woman in the store. I go, what are you doing? She goes, I couldn't, I haven't been able to get out. Your mother locked me in the store. I said, how long have you been here? She goes, four hours. Oh my gosh. I go, what have you been doing? She goes, well, I browsed a lot. She goes, she goes, uh, I took a nap. I got tired. I took a nap on that sofa. She goes, is your name Paul? I go, yeah. 
Um, she goes, well, the phone rang and I took messages. She took messages for us. And I'm yelling at my mother afterwards. I go, Ma, you can't do that. You can't like, she goes, I don't know what you're yelling at me for. The woman's that nap she took on the sofa. She liked the sofa and she's going to buy a sofa. She goes, I made a sale. I wasn't even in the store. So, so this became like funny to bad to sad to like, oh shit. So now I'm back and I'm more fucked than I was before I went up there because law, Wall Street ain't the answer. Comedy ain't the answer. And the family business ain't the answer. So I'm more in a hole and I'm more scared and I'm more confused and I don't know where I belong. But you have at this point, tiny but significant pedigree. It's not like, you know, let's say you wanted to start a hedge fund. You could say, oh, I worked at Goldman Sachs and I went to Harvard and that's your pedigree. Now you want to submit packets to another show. Hey, I've, I've got a- right. Uh, a billion jokes on Jay Leno, right? The top show in the in the world at the time for comedy. Yeah, and and but I didn't know that at the time. So you're right, but in hindsight, right? And I'm freaking out. I'm just like, oh shit! But I couldn't stay up there because I was gonna kill her or kill myself or whatever. And uh, I just decided, fuck it, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna do it. So I moved back. I sold your wife's my, a saint at this point. Yeah, not only that, I'm such a scumbag. I had her move to Boston because Boston's a good town for museums. It's also a good comedy town when you're starting out. Mm -hmm. So I had an apartment here. I got a smaller apartment. She got an apartment in Boston. So I'd spend three or four days in New York. Then I'd go to Boston and spend three or four days with her so I could work open mic nights up there. I mean, at that time you had, I mean, in Boston, you had Louis C.K., Pete Holmes, mm -hmm. Gary Goldman. Yeah. Wasn't, who else was there? Um, a lot of comics were there. Yeah, um, and then guys like Tom Cotter, some other guys, that, and then guys that stayed up there like uh, Steve Sweeney and um, uh, some of the big, uh, Don Gavin, some of the big names up there. So I sold my apartment. I unraveled my life. I sold everything except my sob because <laughs> I needed a car to get around. I sold my suits. I stole my stereo. I kept my TV, my little, I kept one of my TVs, a small one. And I moved to a rooming house in New Rochelle, uh, for $327 a month. And I lived with two ex-cons, two recovering addicts, and I lived right below. I had a, we each had an eight by 10 room with a hot pot on the floor and a little bureau and a single bed. And we shared the kitchen and the bathroom. And I lived right below a 300 pound phone sex operator who sold Herbalife Diet products door to door. <laughs> and I this could is, hear this is all the material. This is, yeah, exactly. And I started to live the life of a comic. And I'd go to hell gigs and shit gigs and I'd, and then the, the, one of the guys was an alcoholic and he'd slap around this guy that he didn't like. So I'd hear this guy like get beating the shit out of the guy outside my door. And then I had tried to break them up. And then I'm hearing, ah, ah, you know, that whole, and like, I know what she looks like. It's theater of the mind. And she's just like, if, if <laughs> right. So I know like when she's pissing on a guy's face, it ain't a 105 pound chick with fucking blonde hair. It's a 312 pound woman, literally. She's like, yo, you can come up and you could, uh, if you want to, if you want to listen in on my calls while I do them, I'm like, nah, I'm good. So I would go out and walk around the neighborhood while she made her calls, like in freezing cold weather. But but I'm doing it. I'm doing it, and I'm spending. I'm away from my girlfriend, and I'm doing it. Well, it sucked. The gig sucked. The bar gigs you get fifty bucks for out in Connecticut sucked. I'm getting stiffed on money. I did a. I did a five show weekend up at a place called Joker's Wild in New Haven. And you have to understand now, the people who I control of my life, which were club owners and shit, low level agents, these are people that we would not have allowed to Xerox documents 
on Wall Street, maybe get us lunch, literally, I'm not kidding. Like they would never have gotten a job even doing like the most menial thing. Now they controlled my life. And this is the biggest problem I had at that point was like, how do I keep my mouth shut? Cause I'd go home and I'd rant to my girlfriend, like they don't the fuck, what the fuck? You don't do things that way. She goes, you're in a completely different, because this is, goes back to the ABCD that I was saying, like you, you, you do things a certain way, especially when you're doing merger deals. It's like, you get it done, man. You don't fuck around like, all right. So anyway, it's February, I go to Joker's Wild. I'm the opening act. I'm he- opening for Elaine Boozler. Um, they, somebody warned me that the owner was an asshole. I walk in and I'm sitting, uh, this guy's sitting at the bar and he, I go, uh, he goes, who are you? I go, I'm on uh, the opening act. He goes, oh, you're Paul. He goes, yeah, he goes, all right. Uh, you want a shot? I go, no. He goes, you want to do some blow? I go, no. He goes, what are you, a pussy? <laughs> I, go, I go, what are we, in high school? I go, no, I'm just, I want to just do the work right now. He goes, all right, I go, I need to see John. He goes, I'm John. He goes, the green room's over there. I go in the in the showroom and everybody's sitting in their coats. I'm thinking, all right, well, the show hasn't started. I could see my breath in the room. He wasn't paying his heating bill. We did five shows with no heat in February in Connecticut with people sitting in their coats. I get off stage at the end of the fifth show. I go to the bouncer, whatever, like I need to get my check. Uh, John left, he didn't leave you a check. What? Yeah, he left, he didn't leave. He stiffed me. He fucking stiffed me. I was doing, now see, now, this, now you have to understand the internal monologue is, I was doing fucking merger deals on Wall Street with T. Boone Pickens and this drug addict scumbag just stiffed me on 200. What the, what am I doing? What have I done? I go home, I'm ranting that Saturday, my wife and I throw a party in, in Boston. I leave the party early because he says, come down and I'll pay you. I go down. I had to drive two and a half hours. He did it again. Oh he stiffed gosh. me again. So now I'm calling him. Like, I'm, I'm just going to call this guy. to he, Call me back. Call me back. Messages. You're a fucking... Finally, he picks up the phone one day. He goes, hey. He goes, you really think you're going to get your money? He goes, if it's between you and the phone company, you lose. You and the electric company, you lose. Go fuck yourself. And he hangs up on me. That was a real low point. Because now and, I'm like, and, I'm in it. And I know I'm in it. Like, so you couldn't, you couldn't say to yourself, you know what? This is not worth it. Because some, there was something visceral about stand-up and comedy and, also and give, performance. And, I, and I also, I'm just, I don't want to sound cliche, but yeah, I just don't, you just don't give up. I mm-hmm. think half of it in life, and I, I really believe it's just like, you just keep taking it in the solar plexus and then eventually you get through where you want to get through. Because it's not supposed to be easy. Because right. it's, really, it's hard. It's hard. And I know this is cliche, and I think the cliche is very apt. If it were easy, everybody would fucking do it, and everybody be Jay Leno and have a lot of money and 100 and 200 car, you know, 200, you know, great cars. But I just was like, I wasn't ready, but it's not good. It's not good. And I'm really miserable. And then uh, I wake up one morning. And I look out, and I know this won't upset you, but it upset me. And my sob was under four feet of water <laughs> because the we would live right by the Long Island Sound, and it had flooded over. And I would work in the car. You drive in the car at night, and then you'd eat at night driving back. And I'd like like a Kentucky Fried Chicken, and I'm looking, and it was literally like white caps inside the car. The water was up to the steering wheel, like the, the where the horn is, the middle of the steering. It was up to the dashboard. And well, maybe could, this is a good thing. This is the final vestiges of your banking life <laughs> underwater. Trust, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You. You. You would have. He would have been like. You're, you. You would have been great because you would have given me perspective. I wish I had known you at the time. So I'm looking, and it's February. 
It's like 10 degrees out. <clears throat> the water's probably four degrees. I start putting on my little Hanes sweatpants thinking I'm just going to wade in and start the car up. It's literally like up to my chest. So I, I call a tow truck company. I'm like, he goes, uh, you're going to need a professional diver. <laughs> I go, what? He goes, I can't let my guys go in that water. You got to hook under the car. And, I, and I'm like, look, man, when you have car trouble, you do not want to hear the words professional diver. You know, like you got a big problem. So I had- That's kind of a joke right there. Have yeah. you used that? I might, yeah. It's, it, and I had to sit. He goes, the only thing you do is wait for the water to recede and then we can send somebody out. And I had to sit there for like four hours. And all I could do was I saw that one of the, I had eaten a Kentucky Fried Chicken the night before and the bag was just floating at the top on top of the water. And I'm like, this is fucking bad. I take the car out, I get it cleaned out. It's compromised because it's all salt water, right? Couple, maybe a week later, I get a letter and I'm getting audited by the IRS. This is like solar plexus. You just keep getting fucking punched in the head. You, oh, you wanna do this? And I do believe that this happens for a reason. This was something, it's God, it's life testing me. How badly do you want it? Like how really badly do you want it? Because we're gonna make it really bad. And if you want it bad enough and you're good enough, you'll break through and some great stuff will happen to you. But you don't get to have the great stuff until you go through this pain. I mean, that's how I look at it. And other people might disagree or make it uh, whatever, but so I go to the audit. Now I'm completely like, I just, I, I'm so depressed. I thrown out what I had, oh, the thing you said about your friends making money. Now I'm running a race that I'm never gonna win because I'm going to visit my friends from Wall Street who just got a second Mercedes, who just took a $12,000 ski trip, fucking helicopter thing. My buddy, you could look at you laughing, you know exactly. Like a buys a mini mansion, my buddy Dan. Still my good friend, just had lunch with him to this day. Great guy, worked with him at Credit Suisse. Nicest guy in the world. I go in his house, it's a Sunday. And all I do is I walk in and I'm, first of all, I pull up to the house and my stomach is in knots. It's just beautiful house. I'm living in a eight by 10 room with a fucking hot pot below a phone sex operator. My car has been flooded out. I have an IRS letter sitting on my bureau. Most of my money is kaput. And I'm like, I don't want to, I said to Carol, my wife, I'm like, I don't want to go in. She goes, well, you got to go in. I just, I can't. So I go in and I'm standing in the foyer and I'm looking around and I'm like, I can't do this. I can't do this. I go into the bathroom. I close the door. I put the toilet seat down. I sit down. I put my head in my hands and I just go like this. I can't, I got to go back. I got to go back. I can't do this. I got to go back. I could have had this. I could have had this. What have I done? If I go back now, I can still have it. It's not too late. I got to go back. Are you okay? Carol, what? Are you okay? <clears throat> I was there for, I sat there for 25 minutes. I didn't even know it. She goes, you got to get out of the bathroom. People need to use the bathroom. Mm. Are you getting sick? I go, yeah, my stomach. I just walked out. I go, I got to go. I'm just, I'm just going to tell them. I'm going to lie and tell them I'm sick. I got to go. And I left. And I was running a race. I was never going to win. So, that feeling that I had when I was still on Wall Street and I started to feel like, can I do this? Should I do it? Now it's just worse. I'm a mess. 
I just tried fucking the family business. I just tried Wall Street and now I just tried this. Where do I shoot my howitzers, man? Like, what the fuck? Nothing is right. How did this happen to me? Five years ago, I had it all figured out. I was like, straight on, motherfucker. You tell me to jump off the building, I, you tell, I tell you, say, what time? And I'll jump off the building better than anybody. Now I'm like a pile of goo. I, I go At this to, point, too, you were still going up probably still on going stage up, quite a bit. Still going up. You know, I'm still, I give myself credit. Like I wouldn't. How many times quit. a week or a month? Um, I'm getting up now like a good three, four times a week. I think I had passed maybe at one of the big clubs, but that just meant like I got to go on at three o'clock in the morning on a Tuesday. But still, it was a badge of honor and it yeah. meant something. But still just shit gigs. But it was the controlling aspect of people who I had no respect for that was killing me more than anything. Not because I was better than them, but because that they were just either douchebags or assholes for the most part, for the most part. Some of them were good people at that level. So I go to the IRS audit. And the guy, this is the only time that you have to legally, you have to legally explain your life and every aspect to it to a total stranger. It's not your priest. He's not your rabbi. It's the law. You got to answer this guy's questions. And he has a guide, which is your tax return, which is your entire life spelled out for him. So you have to answer these questions. So I'm, it's like, I can't, he goes, I've been looking at your file. I can't figure something out. I go, what? He goes, what, what'd you do with all the money? I go, what do you mean? He goes, well, like for a few years, you had like very, very significant income. In the last couple of years, like you're at a loss. I go, what? Do you, what? I'm like, well, I was a lawyer and investment banker. I literally did it like this sheep. I was a lawyer and investment banker and I quit to be a comedian. Pregnant pause. He's like, yeah, right, right. What'd you do with the money? I go, no, I'm serious. I go, I was, a, and then he said to me, who in their right mind would do that? And he became the personification of all the doubts in my head. He said everything to me that I was saying to myself, what have I done? Don't you miss it? You think you can get it back if you want? And I understood him because he was me up until a few years ago, because right. that's what society does. He was probably an accounting major, solid guy, got a job at the IRS, benefits, 30 years, government ain't going anywhere. I don't disrespect that. He was me, he was 99% of us out there. This is what you're supposed to do. You're not supposed to go do this crazy thing where there's no security, there's no net, there's no nothing, just you and the belief in you that you can do it and this thing that artistically hits you. You're not supposed to do that. I had to bring my lawyer in. And 99% of people don't do it. Don't do it. And I don't judge them if they don't. Like, right. So I wasn't, I was first mad at the guy. Then I was like, I understood like, man, I, I, it's, it was all logical questions. It, but, it, but I didn't need to hear it at that point. I needed to hear, I, I, was, just, I was just a mess. And um, I had to bring my lawyer in <laughs> to testify on my behalf that I wasn't lying. And my accountant had to come in. And then I remember one day I kind of snapped. I go, look at my, look at my fast food receipts. I had like $2,300 of fast food receipts. If I worked on Wall Street, would I be $2,300 worth of fast food? I go, look at the time on the receipts. One o'clock in the morning, 1.30 in the morning, Connecticut, New Jersey. I go on a gig. I eat. I can't eat before the gig. I get in the car. I stop at a fast food place and I eat on the way home. You think I'm fucking like, that was like, 
my car, I'm driving my car, but all the connections are compromised, electrical connections. So, you know, sometimes you drive at night, somebody flashes you like, meaning like, hey, there's a cop, watch out. And you flash back like, thank you. Well, my lights were just independently, randomly flashing on their own because of the connection. And people thought I was like flashing them about cops. So they'd flash back. So now the lights were a reminder of how shitty my car, the lights were like Morse code to me going, look at how fucked up your life is. What have you done? Look at your car, you're getting audited. Your girlfriend's 200 miles away. You can't get your friend Dan's house. You're never gonna get that. And so I went to talk to my college advisor who was the coolest man on the face of the planet who always wanted me to do this, but would never tell me to do it. And he goes, look, you need to calm down. He goes, look, it's like this. He goes, you, you went for a swim across the ocean and you left the shore and you're at the point in the horizon where you can't see the shore you came from and you can't see the shore you're going to. But trust if you keep going in that direction, you'll get to that shore. I go, I can't, I can't, I'm too afraid. I'm too afraid and I'm I mean, not. that's good advice that he gave you. But at that moment, your answer is the only answer really. Because no one, no one could really say, okay, good, I'm gonna wait. And well, maybe was, drown, but I'm gonna wait. Right, exactly. And I was still a pussy because I was still looking for someone to tell me what to do. And I'm an adult man. I think we're conditioned not to do something like this. The society conditions us away to not pursue something that's really risky like this. And by the way, this doesn't apply to the arts. This applies to somebody that wants to invest all their money in bobby pins. I don't, you know what I mean? People take risks in lots right. of different ways. People take risks in relationship. It's all it 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 it's been a great life lesson for me that I'll pass on to my son and anybody else who wants it about just, you know, risk in general and believing in yourself. And if you're in a wrong place, getting yourself out of it and get yourself into the right place. So I'm sitting with it, sitting with it. My phone rings one day and it's my buddy, Dan, and he had moved to another investment bank um, and he was starting up a department. And he goes, what are you doing? I go, well, I'm doing the standup and stuff. He goes, well, you want to, I need some help and I need people that I trust and know. You want to make some quick money? He goes, what do you mean? I just need you to help me kind of get this off the ground. And you, you, like a consultant thing, like six months, like $75,000, which, you know, <clears throat> helped because um, my co-op forced me to sell. They wouldn't let me sublet for more than a year. So I had to sell it. I sold it back to the bank. So I basically just wiped my mortgage out and any money I had saved was now gone. And... Um, and I didn't want to take another job because Leno told me just live as frugally as you can so that you can just do stand-up. Because if you start spending money on stuff, you got to pay for it. That means you got to get a day job, then you're not doing your act and blah, blah, blah. And which is what I did. That's why I moved to the shithole rooming house and I sold everything and I ate. You know, I wasn't going out to Latesse anymore, any of those places. Well, I'm like, I don't know, I don't know. He goes, well, just come in. I go out, I buy a suit. I'm standing on the train station in New Rochelle blue suit, white shirt, red tie. I look to my left, I look to my right. There's 40 other guys like me. I'm about to get on the train to go for an interview and I don't even know what the fuck I'm doing. I don't know what I'm doing. It was just, I was like walking around in a daze and, and I didn't belong anywhere. <clears throat> and I was so depressed that I was so lost. You know, you just think, fuck it, man. I'll just walk in front of the train. It'd be easier because the pain was so much. Like it was so much pain of like not knowing and just being so afraid all the time. Not to mention the fact that you, my wife never said anything, but like, you know, I got to marry this chick at some point. You know what I mean? Like it's like- Maybe yeah. she's kind of waiting for you to 
figure it out. She's she like, was. I she was. I don't know what's going on with this guy. He could be a little crazy now. Yeah. So I go back in and I interview. <clears throat> and around the time this happened, I got to do a, a little set of stand up like for TV, like for like uh, like you know they do like four comics, cable TV shows, like a syndicated thing, and I did it. Like, couple of months before. I'm, um, How'd you get that gig? Like a manager hooked you up or? Uh, through one of the clubs that I had sort of been doing late night spots at. They were looking for new, new people. Mm-hmm. And the guy gave my name and they saw my thing. I was like, yeah, you know. So I did it. And then like, they said, we'll let you know when it's gonna air. You know, it's pre-taped thing. So I go into the interview, not really interview, I meet with my friend and I have to interview some other people. And I go back and I have another interview and I have another interview and they're going well. And I don't know why they're going well. And uh, I get a job offer. I get the offer, and it's for more money than he even said, and a better a better title than I had when I left. Well, like I don't like I don't know how I got a better title. I have two weeks to decide to take the offer, and I can't decide. I can't fucking decide. You ask me at twelve oh one, I'm taking the offer. You ask me at twelve oh two, fuck that. I'm sticking with comedy. Twelve oh three, I'm taking the offer. I was so, I was a mess. I was a mess, eight ways to Sunday. And it's the day I got to make the call. And I'm, I literally dialed the number and I hang up the phone, couldn't get through the number. I dial again, I couldn't get through the number. I call my girlfriend, Carol, she's in Boston. I go, I can't, I don't know what to do. I can't, what do I do? I don't know what to do. Well, what do you want to do? I don't know what I want to do. If I fucking knew what I wanted to do, that's like asking me when I tell you, help me find my phone. Where'd you leave your phone? If I knew where, that kind of thing, I'm losing my mind. I hang up, I call and I accept the offer and I hang the phone up and I start crying like a baby. And it wasn't out of like relief. It was one of those things where you did always know what you wanted to do. You wanted to be a stand up, but you wanted to make a half a million a year doing it. So that you wouldn't have that worry. Well, I always say it's a lot harder to have money and then not have it. And you would know this given your background than to never have had it. Right. Because if I didn't have a taste of it, and it wasn't that I missed the the money so much. I don't want to sound like I just wanted a big house. It was just the security of, Yeah. I mean, look, I'm talking about a $70,000 a year accounting job. It, the IRS would have been okay with me at that point versus 50 bucks here, getting stiffed on this, getting people fucking heckling you living in a shithole i mean it was really like it was that that's what it was like and so it wasn't like oh man i want this cigarette boat like the in the worst way possible that you know i just wanted to have some semblance of security and sanity in my life and i just start crying i'm crying i call my girlfriend i'm like i'm fucking i go she goes are you happy is that what you're going i go no i go i just took a job and my gut i know i don't belong there i don't know where i belong i'm completely fucked up i've never been like this I can't, I'm like a shell of myself. I'm like a whole other person. I don't know who I am. I don't recognize myself. What am I going to do? How did I get? I kept saying, how did I get like this? How did I get like this? Moved her back, recreated my life. New two bedroom apartment, all new suits, big ass TV, stereo, swore off comedy. I'm not going to touch it. I ain't even going to watch it. You weren't going up on stage at I all. I wasn't then. going. Not only was I not going on stage, I was not doing the, one of the things I loved to do, which was to watch stand-up t- comedy on TV. I couldn't watch it. I wasn't even watching comedy movies for a while. At this point, though, in comedy, do you feel like you had built up the skill sets and you are now 
kind of like a good club comic. And I think I was a solid club comic, but there was nothing that said this guy's going to be a big star, maybe mm-hmm. someday, or you know, has the potential to be a big, big star, make a ton, ton of money. And you know, I, I, um, there certainly didn't, nothing said that I was going to win Emmy and Peabody awards or do any of that stuff or work on some of these shows that I worked on. Some really cool stuff. I was solid you know you'd see me and you'd see four other guys and you'd remember a little of me and you remember them but i wasn't what i was getting better and i was getting better than a lot of people that i started with so i was kind of i was separating myself from the pack but there's still as you know a lot of stand-ups you know i wasn't like uh walking on the scene like dave Chappelle and just blowing shit up at 16 you know or 17 or 18 so but there was something there but that 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 you know that wasn't enough for me. It was mm-hmm. there was not enough indicator there to make me feel like yeah this is whatever. I just was I just was too afraid. It was just too scary. It was just too scary. It was just I I just couldn't rationally walk away. So I convinced myself I could get back in, and I got back in, and I swore off comedy, and I wouldn't go into a club. I wouldn't. I literally wouldn't watch comedy movies. I would, and um um. Miserable, not happy. I don't like the guy I'm working for. It's not my friend. It turns out to be somebody else. And it, he's not, he's kind of a, not a guy, nice guy, manipulative and not someone to trust. And so now we're in uh, Phoenix and we're selling an HMO, Pinnacle West, uh, like an $800 million deal. And I'm like the lead guy and for our firm and stuff and doing due diligence. And then one day there's a big meeting with a bunch of lawyers and bankers and the CEO comes in, you know, this guy with like 60 with gray hair or whatever. And he's like, did I see you on TV last night in front of everybody? I'm like, no. He goes, yeah, you you were on TV. Like you you had like, you were saying some things about your life. No, I wasn't being coy. They aired, the thing I shot, they didn't huh. tell me the air date and I forgot about it. Huh. So I'm like, no, I, he goes, yeah, you were like in front of a, there was like a curtain and you were telling, I think you were telling jokes. I'm like, ah, oh, fuck. So, because it, cause I had never told anybody about that life, right? Like, you know, it's like, yeah, I was a porn star, but now I'm not a porn <laughs> star anymore, right? And he goes, yeah, he goes, um, he goes, you, you, I go, um, yeah, he goes, yeah, that, that was me. Now I figure I'm dead, you know, I'm not gonna be fired on the spot, but like by the end of the week, I won't have a job. And um, long pause, like, and there's again, there's like a dozen people in the room, all high level bankers, lawyers. And he goes, uh, it was great. He goes, hey everybody, my investment banker's a comedian. Isn't that awesome? Calls Phyllis, come in, calls assistant. Isn't there a comedy club in town? Why don't we get a couple of tables where everybody come out? You could do some at the club. I'm like, no, 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 I'm good, I'm good. I found out later, he talked, I became his favorite on, he didn't like the the managing director who was the guy that I didn't like, he liked me. And he said, because it humanized me that I did this other thing. I wasn't just a guy crunching numbers to make a lot of money to go buy a boat or whatever. I was. This I, I think that's thing. a key element, by the way, which is that life shouldn't be just one thing anyway. Right. Like it should be a set of multiple skills because the combination of them brings success. Like right. you having business skills probably later on helped you in comedy. Yes. You having comedy skills got you this recognition from this guy and elevated you perhaps even in the eyes of your peers because they saw how you, this guy was treating you. 
Yeah, and and that last thing you said is a really good point. I think ultimately what I needed was I needed validation from Wall Street that it was okay. Mm -hmm. And not just my two or three friends on Wall Street. Because I still up to that point felt so silly, stupid, whatever the word is, childish that I was doing this comedy thing, you know. You're an investment banker on Wall Street, for God's sake. You work on Park Avenue, you don't do that. And then I remember, uh, and I remember him saying, "You know what? Now you have a, you have a." He said, "Good for you." He goes, "You, you he goes, if you if you think about doing that full time." And I just laughed. He goes, "Well, if you did, he goes, then you'll have a career and not just a job." He said mm-hmm. to me, "This is the CEO of a major HMO uh, who makes his money off of that, and you know Wall Street." And I just was like, "Holy shit!" And he had probably always, uh, my guess is, he had this secret admiration of someone who took the choice of going out there and getting on stage. You know, at in the very beginning, 99% of the battle is just overcoming the fear of getting on stage. Right. And so he probably had, he, like many, many, many others, he, totally he probably had that fear. He, he, he alluded to, I think writing was his thing. And he, he said, you know, I started a book and then I, I got married and the kid and then the two kids. So he had to keep doing, was, he had to keep yeah, the shackles on. Yeah, exactly. Shackles is a great word. And and when I talk about this in my act and now we're, we formulated this into an idea for a show, I get people who come up to me and say, did you really do that? I mean, I go, well, I go, well, I'm a dentist, I'm 38. I hate being a dentist. I never really wanted to be a dentist. My parents really like, cause my brother's a dentist. And my, he goes, but I'm a really good painter and I really, you know, artist. And I go, I go, well, you know, why don't you scale your life down and go for it? Uh, and you could see his eyes. He, I could see me and him when I was lost. Or a kid would kid came up to me recently. Uh, I'm an engineering major. I hate it. He goes, I go, what do you want? He goes, well, I'm a really good bass player and I want to write music. I go, do it. I go, you can always go back colleges and all that's cracked up to be anyway. I go, you got a lot of options. You seem like smart. Same thing, look in his eyes. Like I just told him to put his fucking dick in a vice. He was just like, holy shit. But I, but you, but you can't. But you know what though? You can't convince them, but you can plant seeds. You and plant some seeds, seeds will and grow. You, and, I, and, I, and I think also just live by example, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm not saying I'm whatever, but like, I think that they can see, okay, well, this guy came through the car wash on the other end and his car's not scratched, right? Like I'm, it's working out for this guy. He's done a lot of interesting, significant, some significant stuff and blah, blah, blah. And I needed that affirmation from the guy. Um, that guy, that guy in Phoenix was pivotal for me because at that point, I don't know, I wish I were a stronger person, you know? I wish I didn't need that emotional gold star. But maybe from the everyone Wall is like guys. that. Like maybe if you. Maybe if you had too much courage, it wouldn't have been good. You would have been like, "Oh, I'm going to be a stand-up comedian," right. and then you just never right. would have developed the skills, right? And 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 that that's a good point. But I but I also feel like I wish I were stronger at the time. I'm much better with it now. Where I just say, "I don't give a fuck what anybody thinks about what I'm going to do. I'm just going to do it." I just I don't know why I needed those people to say it was okay. And then once that happened, like, what was then the leap to? Because it wasn't that far from then when suddenly you were a contributor and a, and a writer on the Daily Show. Yeah, yeah. Well, what happened was that I had to scale my life down again, so we moved again because the apartment we were in was going to suck up my, my money. I'd only lasted like eight, barely a year at that job, and uh, we moved to a smaller place. Uh, we got married, and I just started it again. 
living the life of a comic now with some credits and now I'm getting into places and stuff starts happening. And then somebody recognized me, like my stuff from stand-up. And one of the, Liz Winstead, who's created The Daily Show, and she said, do you want to submit? I did, and I got hired. And then the next thing I what, know- What did you submit, like sketches or jokes? Or? No, it was- uh, it was jokes, but it was jokes off of headlines, you know, news news story jokes. And, and again, a joke being just like, here's the headline and then a punchline. Yeah, sometimes uh, every show's different. So, every show writes their own submission packet, like what the late show Stephen Colbert has and what the Daily Show had is like, they want you to write like, uh, pick five headlines from the news this week, write two or three jokes to those with, you know, set up just exactly how you'd want the host to say it. And then come up with a couple of uh, correspondent chats at the desk, you know, and maybe like a couple of field pieces ideas. So they mm. just wanted to see if you kind of so they because they would plug us into different things, right? We'd always write the monologue desk stuff for John, but then you might we okay, you're done with that. Okay, go sit with the, the producer so and so because uh, uh, Steve Carell is going to do a piece on thing. We need to punch it up. So you know, you need to be a utility player, right? So. So then that started to happen. And then I calmed down and I wasn't hyperventilating so much. Were they paying more for that than let's say Jay Leno, $50 a show? Oh yeah, yeah. And then I was like getting a real salad, but I wasn't making my Wall Street money. Mm -hmm. And it was still that thing. There there still was that thing. Like, like, you know, yeah. But your understanding of the world of business, which is really in the context of the whole world economy and politics and everything, that probably really helped you with your daily show comedy. Yeah, listen, writing as a lawyer helped me as a comic because it's all about precise language. And that's exactly what you have to do as a lawyer. I mean, you know, we joked about being long-winded, but legal documents, every word in a legal document is there for a reason. Mm. If it's long-winded, it's because that particular issue is a complicated issue that needs to be explained clearly. So that helped me. The business stuff definitely helped me. Just, marketing you know even now what i do and and what we have in place when i market myself to go into a market i mean a lot of the clubs call me a media whore because i'm i'm really good at press and i hang on to those relationships and then i follow up because i give that show something i'm coming in some comics don't want to do their material whatever i'll come in i'll like write stuff specific to that show and they mm. love it you know so i understand that you know as great as you can be on stage, you got to put asses in the seats. You know, you got to sell. You got to sell soap. So I get that. Um, so you're then, doing you were doing Daily Show, uh, and I imagine these were all different skills, like field pieces, reporter pieces, mm-hmm. monologue jokes. Uh, you're also going on the road. You're also doing stand up in the and city. Like I just, I'm in this film Chuck with Leo Shriver. So I take acting. I work as an actor because it's a different discipline. How'd stand-up. you get into the acting? I just want to act and like I like the idea of me acting and so, I so you had a manager and agent at that point that got you yeah and, and you just an start audition. looking yeah uh no you first just take classes I took classes for quite a while because mm-hmm. acting is different than stand-up you know if you're doing stand-up right you have to bifurcate your mind so you're doing your material but you're also listening to the reaction to your material and deciding am I going to stick with this line of jokes about water well they're not really digging it maybe I should go to here. Now, some comics will stick with it and just bond with that and God bless them. And I might do that some nights, but you got to really be like listening and aware or something happens over here or somebody drops a drink, like there's, but you're still doing your act in a, in a way that you're really connected to the material. You can't do that as an actor. I have to be in complete sync with you in character. 
I can't be listening. Um, I can't be thinking to myself, oh, he just put his hand in his pocket. I can't be, I can't be, oh, I just turned my neck and I heard a crick in my, I gotta be like in the scene with you. I can't be out here. And the trap that some standups fall into is they think because they're good performers as a standup, they're good actors and they're not. So I really worked hard at that. And I, you know, I think I'm pretty good. And, you know, I, I've been getting parts. So again, I, I, I like, I also don't want to just do standup because I know I would get bored just doing the one thing. So I like, and I also go on these shows as a commentator on CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, talking about the world because of my background with The Daily Show. I have skill sets and I have, and again, I write and prepare stuff day of for whatever I have to do. And um, and I think that makes me a better standup and makes me a better actor. And I think my act, like I'm on a set now on TV because I worked around TV. It's like I'm in my living room. The lights don't bother me. All the people around me don't bother. I'm just like hanging out. It, it, I'm not phased by any of it. And then part of the time is too, um, you would do the you would do warm up yes. comedy for the Daily Show and yeah. the Colbert Show yeah. later mm-hmm. or more recently. Mm-hmm. And what's uh, what's the difference doing like what's warm up comedy? So I'm in I'm in I'm getting ready to watch Colbert yeah. and the Colbert Show. It's a live yeah. audience. Yeah. Um, what's what's the warm up comic do? Uh, you can't watch that show like you're watching TV at home. Otherwise, we're going to get canceled. And by that, I mean, ask yourself how much you really laugh out loud when you watch TV at home. Like, laugh out loud. <laughs> oh, my fucking God. That's my- Probably zero. That's what Usually, we, that's, I that's smile it, when it's funny. Exactly. That's what I do. And that's that. And so just picture 500 people doing this. Uh, yeah, this is Les Moonves, so we canceled the show because nobody's watching. Why is anybody watching? because nobody's laughing in the studio. What do you mean? People are sheep. That's why they have laugh tracks. If they laugh, then people subconsciously and consciously go, that must be funny, so I should laugh. It happens in a club. You could feel it. It's the most fascinating thing. That's the thing I love about stand-up is the psychology of it. You know, you you got, I say you need a couple of people, right? You ever see the, like in the Western, they get a little of that, like uh, a little like sh- shrub or whatever, like a little, like, I don't know, like straw. And then they rub two sticks together when they get the straw and then suddenly cut to the next scene. It's a big fire with a pig roasting over it. Well, that little straw is like two people. You get them and it's two more. And then suddenly the other people in the room are conditioned like, oh, this must be funny because they're laughing. I should probably be laughing. I don't think they consciously say that. So so you think in stand-up, like let's say some people are laughing and some people aren't. Do you then focus on the ones who are laughing to get them to laugh more or do you kind of move your attention to the audience that's not laughing? Um, I probably won't do either. I'll just, uh, it just depends. Like if the two, if the, if there's really nobody else laughing, I'll just, I'll just go into some, I'll, I might start talking to them or I might address the fact that it's, they're not laughing and just be honest about it. Cause I like being honest in the moment up there. But if it's, if it's like a decent amount of laughing, then I'll just like, I'll let it play out and trust that the rest of them will get it. And if they don't, that's okay too. Um, I, I still know that I'm doing a good show and that, that's the confidence of just, I think, doing it for a while. What, what, how many years into it did you have that confidence? Uh, uh, maybe eight or nine, I guess. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's a while, you know, you got to- brutal. Yeah, because you got to just stand there. And again, it's like the stuff offstage, just take it. Just, you got to just take it. So, you so- have to, and an audience is not, may not be IQ smart, but they're emotionally- brilliant my father blue collar guy high school educated 
he could sniff you out a mile away if you were bullshitting him. Now, he, he can't match up intellectually with a guy from Harvard, but they fucking know, man. That audience knows if you're bullshitting them, if you're afraid, if you're not sure of yourself, if you have shit material, they know. And, the, and I, two, two examples. One is um, I was, uh, I was in, um, outside of Chicago working in an all black club. The MC was a house MC. He was supposed to do 10 to 12 up front and two or three in the middle. He was doing five up front with all shit hack material. Like, oh, you must be from Onkyville. You know, like when they do the local town and everybody laughs, just like really like shit material, but he was killing. Then the middle act would go up and he eat it because they'll go, ah, oh, shit, ah, oh, that's their laugh. They're into it, but they're just, ah, oh, good mother. They'll do that. So this kid thought they were criticizing his jokes. So he'd be like, I didn't mean anything by it. Like he'd go like that, right? They were devouring him mm. because if you let them, they will fucking devour you. And I don't know why, and it breaks my heart about human nature, but trust me, you put a hundred people in the room, 90 of them will just, something internally, subconsciously will be like, this guy's bleeding in the water and we're gonna fucking go for him. Something happened here, I'll tell you in a minute, this club. So I pull the MC aside. I go, look, I go, you got to do your time the right way. Cause, oh man, yeah, sorry. He goes up, he does it again, next show. I go, look, this is the third time, second time I'm telling you, you got to do 10 to 12 up front. I know exactly what you're doing. You're using this poor scared fucking kid in the middle to warm the crowd up for you. And then you're doing 10 to 12 before you bring me up. Now I don't give a shit. My sets were going fine, but it wasn't fair to that fucking kid in the middle. Does it again. So I go get my coat at the end of the show, my bag. I go, um, I go. Uh, you got a problem? I said to the MC. He goes, well, I go. You're gonna have to headline the rest of the weekend. He goes, why? I go, because I'm getting on a fucking plane. And I'm going home. He goes, why? I go, because you're a fucking asshole and you're a fucking hack, and you think that this is your room because you're a house MC and you're not. You know what you are? You're a fucking MC. Not judging you. That's what the marketplace says you are right now. If you were a feature, you'd be featuring and you're not a fucking headliner, and you don't wanna to listen to me, <clears throat> this weekend, it's my show. It's not the owner's show, it's not the audience's show, it's not your show, it's my fucking show. My name's out there, my, my ass is up there, it's my way or the highway, I'm going home, you go tell, go upstairs, go to the office and tell the owner, you have to headline and see how the fucking club does. <laughs> Clean his act up and he did what he was supposed to do. It happened here one night. What happened here? So and by the way, we're this, doing this podcast at Stand Up New York where, yeah, where yeah. both Paul and I perform yeah. and I've been the bad MC. No. Not for you. No, 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 no. But I have at times. No, no. Listen, I, I think what you do is really, and you're you, what, what's great about you is you're you already. Like, I think usually when you start out, you're just not really who you are because you're not comfortable. Like, so you'll do like surface jokes. By that, I mean jokes about pens that don't work or being on the subway, you know, stuff that everybody can relate to. But you're already you on stage, which I think is great because there's only you. You're really smart. You're really interesting. You're a great conversationalist. So when I first saw you, I was like, uh, you know, you could tell that you're newer in terms of the performance. But like, I remember saying to somebody, this, this guy, there's something interesting and unique and quirky about him. And so that's not easy to do. No, well, thank you. And funny. And, it's, and a lot of the jokes are funny. 
So anyway, we're here, and I was talking to a couple in the black, and it's a back, and it's a great club, by the way. I don't want people to think whatever. So, and um, I was just married couple, you know, standard stuff, because uh, the crowd felt a little tight. So I was like, before I go into material, because I was trying some new jokes, I wanted to kind of get them a little bit more. And so I say to the fucking guy, the guy's answering all the questions. I don't know why. He's just answering all the questions. And then I said, how long have you been married? And the woman blurts out, 25 years, just like that. Even you smile. So it was funny. I mean, the crowd laughed, you know. And I go, oh, that was funny that you said that that way. And then a woman, another woman, 30-ish to my right, goes, what, what, a woman can't speak in public? I go, what? Well, like only a man can speak. Now it was so crazy and disconnected from what was happening that I thought she was just busting my balls and being funny. And I was like, right. And I looked at her and she wasn't laughing. And I go, are you serious? She goes, well, you said, why was it from the woman? So now the whole crowd's like, oh, like, come on lady, what the fuck? And I went, oh, I see what this is. I said, so here's what's gonna happen. I said, I'm gonna be up here for probably 12 or 13 more minutes. I go, you're gonna go out through that door and you see that glass window. You can sit at the bar, have a drink. You're gonna see me up here. When you see me get off the stage through the glass window, you can come back in or you can stay and shut the fuck up. I said, because if you think you're gonna come in here and create a situation of non-PC scenario that never happened, it's not gonna happen. This is my show. And I said, or you can go get a march. What you really need is a march. You need a march and a blog. I said, but this is not the place for you to do what you want to do. I said, unless you want to go spend 10 years on the road and kill yourself and earn the right to be on the stage. I said, but you got one or two choices. And she stayed and the crowd applauded and whatever. And my point in that is that audiences very quickly can feel really empowered over, over the comedian. And for but, some reason- But you're saying, well, you always have to like, take back the power. Absolutely. You're the one on the stage. Absolutely. I saw a comic try to be a black guy who's Jewish and they ate him alive at Caroline's. Mm. I'm not gonna say who he is. He's a really well-known comic. What's up, man? Hey, schnizzle for shit. Like all that fucking Jewish, totally Jewish, looks Jewish, talks about being Jewish. And at one point, <laughs> guy, <laughs> guy up front just, this is, this is the lesson. This is, this is the, in my opinion, he's sitting back, just looking at, the, and I'm watching the front, like what? And I'm like, this is not working. This is, they're not going for it. And this guy goes, hey man, he goes, what the fuck are you trying to be black for? You're fucking Jewish, motherfucker. Oh, the whole place goes crazy. He lost him for the rest of the set. Hmm. He got red. This is an established comic with major credits. They know, they know. So it doesn't matter the, the credits. It doesn't matter the jokes. At that point, it was just he lost crowd control. Well, he lost their respect, right? Like, uh, because I think it shows a lack of respect when you, when you do that kind of thing to people and pander and think, I'm gonna do this step and fetch it routine because you're black and that's all you're gonna relate to. The reason I did well at the All Black Club was I just, and I was nervous and I just said, you know what, stop. Your father put floors in for a living. Most of these people probably are at your economic strata when you were a kid. They just happen to be a fucking little darker than your old man. Just go out and fucking talk about your life. I mean, I made some jokes about being the only white guy in the room, whatever, but like, and that's what I did. I did fine. I didn't change my act. Cause I knew if I changed my act and I try to be them and try to start talking about music that they listen to that I don't, I would lose them. Hmm. Audiences are really, really intuitively smart. 
they're intuitively brilliant and they can also be complete fucking assholes if you let them. Like, and I don't know why that second one happens, but like, and Brian Regan said it best. He goes, it would be really boring if you killed all the time. And it kind of would be. Cause like, you know, you've been doing it long enough. You got that tried and true five minutes that kills. You do it here and then you go to the cellar and you do it. And for some reason, only three minutes of it kills. I have no idea. I maybe would have something happened before you went up. I, maybe a drink was spilled in that that section of the room before you went. I, I, it's just unbelievably fascinating and maddening at the same time. Mm. And you do get about a five minute grace period. I, I don't know if Seinfeld said this, but but I've seen it. Like I've seen Seinfeld go up. Ah, they go crazy, crazy, or Chappelle crazy. Check back in in ten minutes, and if the joke isn't good, he doesn't get much of a laugh. Mm. Like they, they, they're pretty good about it, you know? So, um, but I, now, you know, I think being able to talk about these doubts and everything has been good for people because I feel like, um, and I, and I, and you're going to be on my show and I've been reading up on you and I think we share a lot of similarities, but one is this idea that you can kind of help people like, I don't think I'm changing people's lives, but I do think going back to what we we're talking about, like by example, I mean, I get people saying to me, uh, uh, I, you know, I'm thinking about doing this cause you did it and it seemed to work out. Or do you have advice? I get emails randomly from people that I don't know through my website and I always answer them because I know probably where, what that person's going through. Cause I went through it, you know? And, you know, I think it is, pe- people start off on that standard ladder that they were taught from childhood. This is the ladder you have to go on until you die. And yet we all want to do different things with our lives and understanding the tool chest to make those decisions and understanding the experience of others to give you permission to also make this decision is very helpful to hear a story, to not just tell us, to not just you telling them advice, but to them seeing by example, that's incredibly important. That That's what actually plants the seeds. Yeah, and I think I'm a good example because I wasn't like God didn't like touch me with comedic like it wasn't like I woke up someone said you need to do this you're a you're a you're you're a genius you I you know I'm solid but like I had to kind of and then I you know then you start to develop who you are and your own persona and all that stuff after a while but like I do think that you don't you just don't take no for an answer like you just do not take no for an answer and I got that from my mother. My mother started this business in the 60s in a tenement house with two kids and one in her belly when Italian mothers stayed home and made meatballs. She started a furniture business in her fucking tenement house and then built it into a full-fledged business that's there 50 years later. Well, Paul Mercurio, it's been so great having you on the podcast. I hope that wasn't boring or too long. No, no, it was fantastic (laughs) and fascinating. Was it fascinating? Fascinating. Thank you guys. So what are some credits? What are you doing right now? What do you want to- I'm in the movie Chuck with Liev Schreiber that uh, came out recently and is now out on DVD. Um, um, I'm going to be doing another appearance on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert and- um, I've got uh, a couple appearances coming up on CNN that I'm going to be doing. So I'm kind of like all over the place. And, and then I, my podcast, which is on uh, iTunes, the Paul Mercurio show, which you're going to be on. Yeah. And um, we have, um, I 
something similar. I like to do one-on-one and I wanted to do something that was just like, I either want my listeners to learn something about somebody that they think they already know or learn about people who I think are really interesting and they should know. And so we had some really cool guests like uh, Stephen Colbert, Brian Cranston, Paul McCartney. Paul McCartney, I got just by going up and asking him to do it. Like you just never know, man. That's a great set of guests. Brian Cranston also, Stephen Colbert. Yeah, Jay Bob Costas, Sugar Ray Leonard, um, um, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Thomas Friedman, the New York Times. Because you get something, like Thomas Friedman tells me the first time he heard a dirty joke was from Chi-Chi Rodriguez, the golfer on a golf course when he was 17. Huh. Like no one, I don't think he said that to anybody, not because I'm such a brilliant interviewer, but like I just have a very, very uh, kind of eclectic and wide range of interests. So I just put people on that I would want to listen to yeah. who I think add something to the conversation. Because I think podcasting could be like a, a nice tool where people can actually, it can help people in a way. You know? Yeah. Absolutely. Open their eyes to stuff and everything. So, yeah. Well, thanks so much. Yeah, Fascinating man. story. Paul Mercurio. Do you still do warm up for Colbert or is I do it on more? and off, yeah. Oh, February 23rd and 24th. I'm going to, um, so this is a, um, actually, I'm going to mention, never mind. I'm going yeah, to mention a competing club in the city. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah that's okay. It's Gotham. I'm headlining a Gotham club. Okay, cool. So, Gotham on 23rd? Yeah, 23rd yeah. Street. So that's, 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 that's unique because you, you, know, uh, you, know, you only headline like once a year in the city. But anyway, this was great, man. All right, well, thanks so much, Paul. Yeah, thanks. thanks for coming on the show. I'm looking forward to going on your show. Next time on the James Altucher Show. Let's say someone's in their cubicle and they're listening to this and they're thinking, I've got this just chronic disappointment that I should be doing something else. They've been doing this for 30 years and now they're in their winter and they're afraid they're going to be stuck and they want to get unstuck, but they don't know what to do. The first thing, honestly, that comes to mind for me is that old saying, your best thinking got you here. You probably need the thinking of somebody else. I often say most people live from the neck up. And if we could actually stop and feel how we really feel in our daily lives, we couldn't stand what we're doing. We'd have a really hard time stomaching. There's two levels to that. One is this idea that most people don't know what they want. The second is whether they know what they want or not, most people are not honest with themselves about what they could or should do. Most people, we have not been taught to be present to ourselves. Most people don't know what they want. Most people don't know who they are. We're complex beings, which is what I love so much about us. And we have an opportunity to really kind of peel back the layers and figure out what's going on. Hey, I am so glad you listened to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as well. Please take a moment to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is you get your podcasts. It will only take you a second, but it will help other people discover the podcast. And my goal is to share this great content with as many people as possible. To see the show notes, just head on over to jamesaltucher.com slash podcast. While you are there, you can join my free insiders list to get notified when I post a new podcast. Every day, I also share my best and most controversial ideas You won't get this stuff anywhere else. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next time. You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.